Well, I would invite you, if you would, to turn in God's Word to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, there are a lot of them in the seats in front of you. There's two different volumes that are sprinkled around. It's going to be either page 848 or page 902. John chapter 16. And before I get into things this morning, I want to say a quick hello to my dear, sweet wife, Lori. I think she's watching on live stream, and uh, I don't know. We woke up this morning, she just said, Greg, I just feel like staying home watching football. So uh, she might tune in. No, she was fighting a little bit of a head cold uh, this weekend. She felt better today, but thought, ah, probably better to, to stay home. So she's there with her stepdad, Jerry, as well. So hello uh, to both of you, assuming that you're tuning in. And uh, I'm grateful for you. Well, we're in John chapter 16 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 15, declaring the truth from the spirit of the truth. And we are nearing the end of Jesus' mission discourse. It ends at the end of chapter 16. Then chapter 17, he goes into praying before the Father. Uh, But as we're nearing the end of his discourse, we're also nearing the end of this series that we've been doing, Trinity, Mission, and Me, how the family of the triune God overflows with his love, his light, and his life-giving work in a world that hates him. And today is sermon number eight. Next week, Lord willing, we'll wrap things up with the final sermon as we look at the rest of chapter 16. But the text we're in this morning follows a lengthy section that we looked at last week, beginning in chapter 15, verse 18, where Jesus warns his disciples that they will be hated, rejected, and even murdered by those who are rebellious in the world. But he also promises in that context that they will be helped. And now in verses 5 to 15 of chapter 16, he's going to elaborate on how their help will come from the helper, from the spirit of truth, from the Holy Spirit. And so let's hear the word of God. I'm actually going to pick it up near the end of verse 4 and then read through verse 15. So this is the word of the Lord, verse 4, near the end. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you." 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we ask his help in the things we see this morning. Our Father in heaven, you are indeed so powerful and so kind and so faithful. And we ask that you would help us now by your Holy Spirit to taste and to see through what you've revealed in this passage how good you are. Father, please show us more of your glory, your purpose, and your provision in Jesus Christ that we might trust, obey, and delight in him more and more. Help us to walk in the fullness of all of your provision to bear the fruit that you have designed us to bear all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we are told of a time when God's people in the kingdom of Judah were under attack from an alliance of pagan kingdoms. And the king of Judah at the time, a man by the name of Jehoshaphat, and his people, they were greatly outnumbered and completely inadequate to face the well-trained and the well-supplied swarm of wicked armies that were attacking them. It might have been like a tiny European country uh, being invaded by the Third Reich at the height of World War II in their power. There just would have been no contest. But King Jehoshaphat was a good and a godly man, at least at that time, and so he led his people to set their faces to seek the Lord and to seek his help. And Jehoshaphat's, it's kind of a hard name to say quickly, Jehoshaphat's prayer is recorded in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 6 through 12. And in that prayer, he acknowledges God's sovereign authority and the promises of God. And then he ends his prayer by crying out to God and saying this. This is verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless to face this great horde that is coming against us. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, we could learn much from Jehoshaphat's faith, and we could imitate his prayer, couldn't we? As I have done countless times through the years, probably weekly, if not daily. And I would just ask you, in your own life, have you ever faced something for which you felt thoroughly unprepared, inadequate, and completely incompetent? Maybe an overwhelming school or work assignment that you've been given. Maybe a tough relationship responsibility or a problem going on that is dark and daunting. Maybe you're facing a hard medical diagnosis or the death of a loved one. Maybe there's somebody that you know that God would have you to witness to regarding Jesus Christ, but you're frozen with fear and intimidation. I mean, really, just 
fill in the blank with whatever it may be. We all know what it means to face those kinds of situations where we feel and where we often are uh, just incompetent and inadequate. Situations that are impossible for us to deal with. Well, it's clear in Jesus' mission discourse that he is giving his disciples a massive and an overwhelming task. In fact, we learn in the discourse that he's calling them, as he calls all of us who belong to him, to a mission that will not only be hard and difficult, but one which will be and is humanly impossible. But you see, that is just the point. Because if this were a mission that any of us could fulfill in our own strength and in our own power, well, then we would get the glory. But because it's a humanly impossible mission that he calls his people to, he is the one, the triune God, who gets all the glory when it succeeds. Well, in the text that we're looking at this morning, verses 5 to 15 of chapter 16, we find the disciples emotionally crushed. They are overwhelmed with sorrow at the news of Jesus physically leaving them. And he's told them that he, he who has been their total security, their total strength, he is leaving to return to the Father. And as we saw last week in chapter 15, verse 18, through the beginning of chapter 16, he's just told them that they can expect to face the full force of the world's hostility when he's gone. And so we can imagine and we can appreciate something of what they must have been feeling, of how a heavy and dark cloud of despair had enveloped their souls. But Jesus lovingly orchestrated all of this. He knew about all of it and what they were experiencing. And he designed all of this ultimately for their advantage and for their fruitfulness and for for fruitfulness and for our advantage and for our fruitfulness as well. And so really what he gives in verses 5 to 15 are words of assurance and words of hope about the coming work of the Helper of the spirit of truth. And all that he says in this passage can be summarized this way. This is the main truth that we find here. It's this, that the triune God fully empowers his people for their mission to the world. The triune God fully empowers his people for their mission to the world. Now, because the whole thrust of the entire discourse of all that Jesus is doing and saying in chapters 13 to 16 is is a thrust of comfort, it's a thrust of exhortation and of preparation for what the disciples are to do after Jesus departs, because of that, what we're going to see in verses 5 through 15 are three implicit calls that Jesus makes with what he says here for the benefit of his people. Three implicit calls that he gives us here to strengthen his people. And so let's look at the first of these. We see it in verses 5 to 7. I'll call it a call to fulfill God's mission. The call is to fulfill God's mission. 
In fact, let me just broaden it a little bit and say it this way. It's a call to fulfill the Father's mission in Christ through the Spirit of truth. A call to fulfill the Father's mission in Christ through the Spirit of truth. And this is the first implicit call that we see. Again, this is in verses 5 to 7. And so at the end of verse 4, Jesus says, referring to all that he said about the hate of the world, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And then he goes on to say what he does in verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, among other things that we see here, we see that Jesus was fully aware of the overwhelming sorrow that his disciples were feeling about his going away. And in love with what he says, he is gently rebuking them for their self-absorbed and short-sighted sorrow in their anguish. He's not diminishing the reality of their sorrow, and he's being very gentle, but he's nonetheless rebuking them because this is immobilizing them from walking more fully in his mission for them. In other words, they are so consumed in their grief that they have lost sight of the big picture of God's saving mission and of their place in it. You see, Jesus had been sent on a mission from the Father, and he's about to complete that mission and return to the Father. And his gentle rebuke is really seen in verse 5 when he says that no one has asked him, where are you going? Now, if you're familiar with this discourse, you might know that Peter had actually expressed that exact question back in chapter 13 and verse 36. And in chapter 14 and in verse 5, Thomas had asked Jesus about the way to where he was going. So what's going on with Jesus saying that nobody's asked me about where I am going? Well, Jesus knew the thoughts and the intentions of their heart with what they said. They weren't really interested in the mission of the Father and the mission of the Son and and God's purpose in these things. In essence, what they are saying is, why are you leaving? And Jesus knew and understood that was the intention of their hearts. We don't want you to go, Jesus. And so now in chapter 16, as their hearts have become engulfed with grief, he is lovingly, Jesus is lovingly and truthfully speaking to comfort them, to stabilize them, and to refocus their faith in him, and to refocus them on God's mission for them. And so in verse 7, when he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, you get the sense of, a, of an emphaticness with that. It's sort of like a parent uh, lovingly taking the, the head of their young child and saying, listen to me, look at me, hear what I'm saying. That's kind of what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. And he wants them to understand that his going away 
is actually to their advantage. Now, Jesus had spoken earlier about the coming helper. He's also identified as the Spirit of Truth or the Holy Spirit who Jesus has said will indwell the disciples. He speaks about him in chapter 14 verses 16 and 17 and again in verse 26 of that chapter. And he also speaks about the helper in chapter 15 verses 26 and 27. And he's told the disciples that the Holy Spirit will manifest the presence of both Jesus and the Father in the disciples' lives. He speaks of that in chapter 15. But now he is wanting them to understand the fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit, building on things that he has already said. And he's talking about the triune empowerment that God is bringing to them. And so he reinforces this in verse 7 by stressing that the coming spirit of truth will actually be an advantage over Jesus' physical presence with them. And just think about what an amazing truth that is for them and the implications of that for us. In other words, he's telling the disciples that for them to live and to walk by the Spirit will actually be better than walking with Jesus. It'll be better for many reasons. And as Jesus is about to explain, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will be an advantage because of the work that he is going to be doing in the world and because of the work that he will be doing in their own lives. And so again, the point that he's making is that God fully empowers his people for their mission to the world. And so in all of this, in verses 5 through 7, again, Jesus is implicitly calling his disciples to fulfill their part in God's mission. And just as he had told them back in chapter 14 again, and in verse 12, that there are greater works that they would be doing when the Holy Spirit comes, in other words, greater works of declaring God's truth, greater works of displaying his love, he's also told them in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, that they're to bear witness of him through the Holy Spirit. And so, in other words, he's saying to them, men, there's more going on than just the sorrow of your circumstances. He cares for them. He loves them. He understands and he wants to comfort them. But he's comforting them by raising their attention, raising their focus beyond the sorrow of their circumstances to see the work that God is doing. And what's happening, he's telling them, is to their advantage within God's mission. Beloved, for you and I, this is God's continual call to us as well, isn't it? Whatever is going on in our circumstances at any given moment, including pain, including sorrow, including all kinds of trials, God knows and God cares about those things. God's ultimately ordained these things. But he's done so in large part because he wants to lift our eyes to seek him and to trust him all the more and to continue to be faithful in fulfilling his purpose for us in his mission in this world through us. And that's for our greatest good as well. He calls us to fulfill his mission within these circumstances, to keep us abiding in Christ, to keep us going for Christ, 
declaring His Word and displaying His love. And to that end, He calls us to pray and to trust Him and to seek Him and to fulfill His mission for us, knowing that He's with us. And so this is the point of verses 5 to 7, this implicit call from Jesus that His people are to fulfill God's mission even as we trust that he is with us. Well, this leads to the second implicit call that we see in verses 8 through 11. And he goes on to explain the specific work that the helper, the spirit of truth, is going to be accomplishing in the world. And this again reveals the second implicit call. And I'll identify it this way. Not only are we to fulfill God's mission, but second of all, we're to declare God's truth. We're to declare God's truth. And again, I'll expand this a little bit and say it this way. We're we're to declare the Father's truth in Christ through the Spirit of truth. We're to declare the Father's truth in Christ through the Spirit of truth. Now this is implicit to what Jesus explains about the Spirit's work in verses 8 to 11. And in order to rightly understand all that he says about the Spirit's work here, we need to be reminded of what he had said earlier in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, about the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. And so there in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15, he says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now what he says there in chapter 15 governs the significance and the meaning of what he says in chapter 16 about the work of the Spirit in the world. And what he's revealing in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 16 is the effect that the witnessing work of the Spirit through God's people will have in the world. I hope you see that connection. The witnessing work of the Spirit through His people produces the effects that He speaks of in verses 8 through 11. And so He says, verse 8, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so again, the implicit point that Jesus is making is that because the spirit of truth will be doing this convicting work in the, in the world, we who are his disciples are to be faithful to declare God's truth. To bear witness about Jesus through the power of the Spirit, trusting that the Spirit of God will be using that to accomplish His convicting work. Now there's three areas that he speaks of specifically in which the Holy Spirit will convict the world. Namely, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what we understand in this, beloved, is that God holds the world accountable. No one escapes from God's oversight. No one escapes from God's authority. He is over all and he holds the entire world accountable. 
Now, the sense of convict here, just before we look at these three specific areas where the conviction takes place, we need to understand the nature of this conviction that he's talking about. And it's pretty evident. He, it has to do with exposing the reality of guilt on the basis of evidence. Exposing the reality of guilt on the basis of evidence. In other words, it has to do with revealing the reality of what is there based on objective facts. Based on objective facts. It's kind of like when you go to the dentist. Casey, you'll appreciate this. Casey is a dentist over here. It's kind of like when you go to the dentist. You might go and you might not be aware of any problems that you have going on with your teeth or within your mouth. But your dentist might bring to you what we could call dental conviction, right? Because of his or her her expertise and because of high-tech x-ray equipment, they are able to see and discern the reality of what is there. And so they can expose all kinds of dental problems that have to be addressed. And I know what an exciting process that is. But that's what happens. They know and they see what is uh, observably there. The facts of what's there. The evidence of what's going on. And then they can make a diagnosis and, of course, hopefully fix it. Well, that's the sense of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to the world. It's like a giant, inescapable searchlight that exposes the reality in these three areas of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And notice that Jesus explains each one of these areas fully in conviction or fully in connection with himself. And so first of all, he says in verse 9 that the helper will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe me. And this helps us understand that the essence and the root of all sin is to not believe in Jesus Christ, the one whom the Father sent to take away sin. If you reject and rebel against and don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're revealing the reality of your own sin. And to reject Christ is really the sin of all sins because unbelief of, in him reveals evidence of pride and of rebellion in a person, as was true of the religious leaders who ultimately murdered Jesus. Their rejection of Jesus exposed their undeniable guilt. Well, then next, Jesus goes on to say in verse 10 that the helper will convict the world concerning righteousness, he says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, what he's likely referring to here is his own perfect righteousness that is accepted by the Father. And in his perfect righteousness, this exposes the false imperfect self-righteousness of sinful people. I think that's the point of what he's saying. He's saying that the spirit of truth through the declaration of his truth reveals the true nature of righteousness that is found only in Jesus. Righteousness that has to do with 
perfect internal conformity to both the character and the commands of God. And this true righteousness that God requires, that's found only in Jesus, exposes the unrighteousness of sinners and exposes their need to trust Jesus, who is the righteous one. In fact, in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7 and also in 1 Peter 3 and in 1 John chapter 2, that's exactly how Jesus is identified as the righteous one. And so his perfect righteousness exposes the imperfect, false self-righteousness of the world. Well then third, Jesus says in verse 11, that the helper will convict the world concerning judgment. He says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the devil. He's referring to Satan. He's already spoken of the ruler of the world earlier in chapter 12. Listen to what he says in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 12. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And what Jesus is speaking of there, which is what informs what he says about the ruler of the world in John 16, is that uh, Satan's judgment has been secured and will be secured at the cross when he is lifted up from the earth. And so his point in chapter 16 verse 11 is that Satan is a conquered, defeated, judged enemy. And the implication is that sinful and unrighteous people who are ultimately following the influence of Satan will likewise be judged and condemned. That's the sense of what he means. And so in other words, with the conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit is ultimately saying, you're guilty. And with the conviction of righteousness, he's also saying, you're unrighteous, you're unacceptable to God. And then with the conviction of judgment, he's also saying, you're condemned. That's the diagnosis. You're guilty, you're unrighteous, and you're condemned. That's the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. But now here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is the amazing truth. We tend to think of conviction as purely negative, I think, don't we? We tend to think of conviction as purely negative because it's bad and it's expose, it exposes what's bad. It exposes what's really bad. But you see, what's the goal of conviction? Well, just like the dentist, the goal is positive. The dentist doesn't tell you bad news about what's going on with your teeth because they want to destroy you, at least not most dentists, it might feel that way sometimes, but they don't want to destroy you. What do they want to do? They want to promote your healing. They want to promote the health and the well-being of your teeth, which of course has implications on a lot of different things. So even though conviction might seem negative, the goal is positive. 
And how much more so spiritually with the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. It's a positive conviction that's intended for healing. It's intended for restoration. It's intended for salvation and eternal life. Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 3, verse 16, the most likely the best known Bible verse in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we have to deal with the conviction of our sin and our unrighteousness and being condemned under God's judgment if we're to understand the reality, the wonder, the hope, the power of the eternal life that God offers in Jesus Christ. So in other words, through the declaration of his truth, the spirit of truth is saying to people, you're guilty, you're unrighteous, and you're condemned, but you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be counted righteous in the righteousness of Christ. You can be restored. You can have the hope and the peace and the joy of eternal life in Him. Now what's interesting with all of this is that's exactly what we see taking place again and again in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes just as Jesus promised... And he fills the believers. And in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, he stands up and he's indwelt by the Spirit of God and he declares the truth. He bears witness about Jesus. And the Spirit of truth works through his word to bring conviction. And so what do we hear near the end of Peter's sermon? Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And just imagine, he's, he's speaking to the very men among others who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Spirit of God uses that. And so we read in verse 37 of Acts 2, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What was happening? They were convicted by the Spirit of God. They were convicted of their guilt. They were convicted of their unrighteousness. They knew they were under condemnation. And so they cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter responds by telling them to repent, to be baptized as an expression of their repentance. And we're told that day that 3,000 souls came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Presumably among them, some of those very people who had murdered Jesus. Amazing grace. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the disciples continuing to make spirit-empowered declaration of the truth and the Spirit of God bringing conviction on people. And what we see throughout Acts is sometimes this conviction results in people repenting like many did in Acts chapter 2. At other times, like in Acts chapter 7, upon the preaching of Stephen, the people respond in rage and they murder Stephen. But they were nonetheless convicted. 
they were nonetheless convicted. And so the disciples, Jesus is telling them in chapter 16, when he speaks of this convicting work of the Spirit, again, the implicit call is, therefore, be faithful to declare God's truth in the power of the Spirit. His truth about sin, his truth about righteousness, his truth about judgment, and ultimately the hope of salvation that's available in Christ. And so, beloved, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring conviction and accomplish the mission of God in the world. Again, the triune God fully empowers His people for our mission in this world. And ours, like these original disciples, ours is to be faithful by His Spirit to declare His truth, to bear witness of Jesus. To not rely on man-made methods and gimmicks and strategies, but rather to rely on God's Spirit and to rely on God's Word. And how people respond is ultimately between them and the Lord. And it falls within the mysteries of God's sovereignty. Ours is not to try to conjure up some response. Ours is to be faithful to declare the truth and to preach Christ. And so in verses 5 to 7, we see Jesus's implicit call for his people to fulfill God's mission. And now in verses 8 to 11, we see his implicit call for us to be faithful in declaring God's truth. Well, there's a final implicit call with what Jesus says in verses 12 to 15, and this has to do with the spirit of truth's work in his people. Verses 8 to 11 is about the spirit of God's work in the world. Now Jesus speaks of his work in his own people. And I'll identify this point this way, that we are to grow in God's life. We are to grow in God's life. We're to fulfill God's mission. We're to declare God's truth. We're to grow, number three, in God's life. And once again, I'll expand it just a little bit to give it the Trinitarian flavor that we find so richly in this passage and say it this way. We're to grow in the Father's life in Christ through the Spirit of truth. To grow in the Father's life in Christ through the Spirit of truth. And so Jesus says, starting in verse 12, and notice the tenderness, notice notice the wisdom, notice the care he has for his people. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And how wonderful and how tender, again, that Jesus knew the present weaknesses. He knew the limitations of his disciples. And so he speaks of what we could call the progressive, guiding, maturing, sanctifying work of the spirit of truth in God's people through the word of truth. And again, implicit to this call, or implicit to all of this, is the call to keep growing in this truth, which is to grow in the Father's very life in Christ through the Spirit. Now, as the Father gave his words to Jesus, and Jesus 
faithfully declared those words throughout his ministry. He talks about that near the end of John chapter 12. He mentions it elsewhere. We see it in his prayer in John 17. But as he faithfully declared the Father's word, so now the Spirit of truth would further speak, Jesus says, not on his own authority, but in the authority of the Father and the Son. And Jesus had earlier said that the spirit of truth would teach and remind his disciples of all that he said. He says that back in chapter 14 and verse 26. But now he says the spirit will guide them into all the truth and he will declare to them the things that are to come. And what he's ultimately speaking of is what is embodied for us now in the New Testament. This is the Spirit guiding us into His truth. He's given us His Word, His completed Word. And it's also the Spirit of truth that helps us to understand the Word that He has revealed. And Jesus also says, as you notice there in verse 14, that the Spirit of truth would glorify Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And so the promise for these disciples that he's speaking to, the promise for you and for I and for everyone who has faith in Jesus is that the Spirit of God indwells us. And because he indwells us and works through his word, he is continuing to grow us and guide us into a fuller knowledge of his truth, which is a fuller knowledge of the life of God in Christ. Equipping us, sanctifying us, and maturing us to know Him, to trust Him, and to obey Him more and more, and to keep sharing in His eternal life. Now, among other things, what Jesus says and does here in verses 12 through 15 is He gives His disciples confidence, He gives them comfort in letting them know that the Spirit of truth will not leave them. He'll keep growing. He'll keep sanctifying. He'll keep making them adequate to fulfill God's mission and to declare God's truth. He's not leaving them alone. As he tells them again earlier in chapter 14, I'm not leaving you as orphans. The Spirit is going to continue to guide and direct and lead you. And beloved, what Jesus promises here in verses 12 to 15 is that the spirit of truth is going to keep working to sanctify God's people in his truth, that we might continue to share in the life of God in greater and deeper and fuller ways as the empowerment of fulfilling his mission and declaring his truth. Practically, this means that we should continue to be feeding on God's word. That's why we gather like we gather now to sing about God's word together, to hear God's word read and preached and to pray to God in light of his word. And as we do from time to time to share in the Lord's Supper or to share in in witnessing others being baptized through their faith in Christ, we do all of that for our souls to be nourished in God's word. That's why we read God's word on our own and seek to study it and memorize it and apply it in our lives. Because God wants us to know the fullness of all that he is and revealed in Christ. It's interesting, even in chapter 17, as a part of Jesus' prayer, at one point he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You see, he's praying about the very thing he's talking about here in chapter 16, that his people would grow, that we would be sanctified. And we hear similar calls to grow elsewhere in Scripture. Think about what Peter himself said in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
uh, verses 1 to 3 when he says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk which he's referring to the Word of God, he says that by it you may grow up into salvation. There's an intense, eager, focused longing, like a newborn baby who wants to be fed. That is to be the way we're to respond to and hunger after God's Word. And at the end of his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says simply, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, as we pull this all together, again, the point of what Jesus is saying ultimately is that the triune God fully empowers his people for our mission to this world. And even today, God is speaking through his word. He's declaring life-giving truth for our souls. And so everything that Jesus says in verses 5 to 15 here of the Holy Spirit's work both in the world and in the lives of God's people, it all speaks of His powerful, abounding, transforming work that the Holy Spirit brings when He is poured out. This is the nature of the life-giving river of life that Ezekiel prophetically is spoken to about in Ezekiel 47, as we had read earlier. And by the way, that prophecy in Ezekiel 47 comes to its fullest fulfillment in Revelation chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 22, as we read of, of, of the river of life flowing out of God's very throne, bringing life and healing to the nations. And it's the Spirit's mighty work that Jesus himself spoke of earlier in John chapter 7. Listen to what we read in verses 37 to 38 there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we're told in verse 39 that he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is speaking about in chapter 16. And from what we see happening in the early church in the book of Acts, is we see these rivers of living water flowing from the original disciples as they proclaim Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And many of us, by God's grace, have come to taste those very waters of living water, those very, uh, the very life of that living water, because we have life in Christ by His grace. Well, I would just close by asking this question, how do we practically experience more fully the empowering work of the triune God? If this is what he is doing and has done and desires for us, how do we come to experience it more fully? How do we come to more faithfully uh, fulfill his mission and declare his truth and keep growing in his life? I think Jesus answers the question repeatedly in the mission discourse. It's simply, profoundly this. Pray, pray, and keep praying. Remember what he said in 
verses 7 and 8 of chapter 15. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And even in chapter 16, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, verses 23 and 24, he echoes this again. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You want to experience more of God's power in your life? Then humble yourself and pray and pray and keep praying. And remember the example of our friend King Jehoshaphat. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, he cries out, We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't it loving and wise and good of God to often put us in situations for which we feel and in reality are unprepared, inadequate, and incompetent? Situations that overwhelm us, situations that are humanly impossible for us to deal with. He does this not to crush us, Not to destroy us, but to humble us and to show himself strong in our weaknesses. So beloved, pray and pray and keep praying that God in Jesus Christ through the Spirit would be pleased to bear much fruit in our lives for his glory. Let me lead us in prayer. And Father, we would ask that you would do that very thing. Help us to recognize our inadequacy, our impotency. Uh, The fact, as you've told us in John 15, that apart from you, we can't do anything. And help us to pray in faith and in confidence and in great expectancy because of how great you are and because of the great promises that you've given, that you would help us by your Spirit to fulfill your mission for us in this world, to declare your truth, and to keep growing in your very life. As you know each one of us and and what's going on in our lives with, with our own circumstances right now, would you be pleased to accomplish such things for our joy and peace in you and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen and amen.